first go on the new stage. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Appreciate that. Let's give the worship he- uh, team a hand. Thank them for their service this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Acts chapter 17. I know all you Bible geeks out there get excited when I say the book of Acts. Who's got their Bible today? You fellas have read it, right? (laughs) Okay. Let's pray and then I'll get to work. Father, Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this time together. I thank you for our church. And above all, I thank you, Lord, for your grace, your mercy. I thank you for your your life that you lived in this world, Lord. Your death, Lord God, and your resurrection from the dead, Lord God. We give you all the praise this morning. And I pray, Holy Spirit... You're here amongst us, and we give you this time, and I pray, Lord God, that that you would guide me in these words, and you would take these words and minister them to the hearts of your people, Lord God. Answer their questions, Lord. Reveal yourself to them today. I just pray you have your way, and thank you that your word says that it will not return void, but it will achieve that which it is sent forth to accomplish. Glory to you, Jesus. In In your mighty, matchless name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, Pastor Andrew, for pointing out my ADD. I'll do my best this morning to point it in the right direction. Thank you to all those of you who have prayed. All right. Acts chapter 17. Who's read the book of Acts? All right. Now, who knows that the Bible is not just a collection of stories? Only recently, I was listening to a um, radio coming in from work, and I love the BBC. All right. And they had this sort of interview with an Israeli author called Yovel Noah Harari. Have you heard of him? He wrote the book Sapiens. I've only read excerpts. I've actually read the whole, the whole thing. Um, but it was really good. It's a brief history of humankind. And then he wrote another book called Homo Deus. Deuce. Deuce, sorry. A brief history of tomorrow. Anyway, he was getting interviewed by, uh, on the BBC. Uh, and he's got some, he actually tracks human history right through. But he takes it right back to what he believes is evolution. So it kind of misses creation and goes down a different track. But then once he gets like the Middle Ages from there, it kind of explains... Western civilization. Anyway, look, great read, but he's got a bit of false doctrine in there. But he's full of ideas about how humanity should come together, right, and things like that. And the interviewer asked him, so what do you feel is the greatest hindrance to people coming together? And he said, well, that's easy. In the current climate, it's fake news. I was like, okay, so yeah, people are getting fed misinformation through our media and things like that. Things aren't happening. Because he's an Israeli guy and he's like, they're not really portraying his country properly and things like that. And then they asked him, because he, in his research, he tracks it back to the ancient world. The interviewer asked him, was there any evidence of fake news in the ancient world? And he goes, absolutely. And this is what he says, just look at the Bible. And I was about to rip my stereo out of my car, but I just had to stop and think about it. And I thought, hang on, dude, that's not the case because to be fake news it's got to be fabricated and then promoted but you can't do that if someone was there to see it doesn't work right now this is the thing is he basically said the bible was fake news but the bible's still here today because when it was written down people actually saw it like jesus walked on water actually another another fisherman did it as well and there's 11 other guys in the boat who saw that like, there was multitudes that followed Jesus around day after day after day. And the reason was because they saw what he was doing. And then the, the Gospels were penned down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to remind the author exactly what had happened. 
And yet no one contended with it. For two, two millennia later, we're here because this was, was seen. And Jesus resurrected from the dead. He came back. And people penned it down in biographies, copied it, handed it around. And people were like, well, yeah, I, I was there. I, I saw that. I saw that. It even says that there, as he ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olivet, he actually levitated off the ground and floated back to heaven. And there was about 500 dudes up there that saw that. And they're just like, it's Jesus that? And then there's two angels and they go, oh, who's this dude? Guy in the white gown, shiny white gown, like nappy sand gown, right? And they're like, oh, and he's like, this Jesus whom you seek, he will come back in the same way. And there's another guy on the other side, there's two of them. These things happen and people saw it with their own eyes. You can't call it fake news. It's easy to do that 2,000 years later. But if you actually look at the bibliography and how, like, how the um, parchments were replicated and passed down, it's a fascinating story, and it will do more for your faith than anything else here. And those angels did say that he will come back in a light manner. And it says in the book of Revelation that every eye will see. And so a little kid in um, Scripture will be like, well, if he's going to come back in one part of the world, how are the kids on the other side of the world going to see him? Um, live streaming. Like, come on, straight up. Like, 100 years ago, that would have been a head-scratcher. But right now, it's like, oh, we are close to the end. Right? All right, stop distracting me, because I'm going to race against the clock. All right? All right, Book of Acts. Okay, the Book of Acts, which is not fake news, but is a historical account. It's actually the sequel to the Gospels. So Jesus has ascended back to heaven, hasn't come back yet. And this is the story of the beginning of the early church. And it's a series of episodes that depict some of the struggles encountered by the early disciples as they moved out into the Great Commission. And there's this character that enters halfway, Paul. Originally called Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee, and he was actually hunting down Christians. He was hunting them down. Now, the Bible doesn't say that he actually killed any himself, but he definitely gave orders to the guys that stoned Stephen, pulled their coats. And he himself, don't know, may not have had blood on his hands, but yet he was definitely lining them up, getting them arrested, and he was well known amongst the, the, the Sephora as the guy who was hunting down Christians. Yet, these Christians, they didn't band together and take up arms and start fighting back. No. They had a greater weapon. They loved those that persecuted them. They overcame hate, they overcame fear with pure love and through that this Saul of Tarsus saw these things happen he was murdering people and they were loving on him and he's like it was just doing his absolute head in it and he couldn't figure out what was going on until Jesus revealed himself to him and then Paul undergoes this radical life change and total 180 backflip becomes goes from the greatest persecutor of the church to the greatest evangelist of all time only God can do that in someone's life. And he undertook three missionary journeys. First one, he started in Antioch in Syria and went through Cyprus, Perga, Antioch, and Prasida, and then back to Jerusalem. And the second one, he goes from Antioch, Derby, Lystra, across the Mediterranean Sea, and then across the Aegean Sea to Athens. And that's where we're going to jump into the story. All right, so we're in chapter 17. 
So I want you to run your fingers down to, or scroll your app, whatever you're into. Let's go to 16, just for fun. And Maddie is going to put that up on the screen for you, for those of you who forgot your Bible. With a real funky cosmic background, isn't that cool? Wow, we are tech savvy. All right. So far in the story, so Paul and Silas, they're on Paul's second missionary journey. They've arrived at Thessalonica. Now, he started preaching Jesus, which is contrary to a lot of the traditions um, from the synagogue. And a lot of the Jews at the time got really upset and chased him out of town. And there was a guy called Jason who was harboring the Christians. He was hiding them. They've kind of busted him, and they kind of raided his house, dragged him out in the streets, beat him up a bit, and then he actually paid them to go away. And then they, they kind of got him on the run again, moved, and he went to a place called Berea. Now, you probably heard a lot of Baptist churches called the Berean House of Prayer, Berea, Church of Berea at so-and-so. Bereans, it actually says in the Bible, were fair-minded people who searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Because the Torah, the Pentateuch, and historical writings of the Old Testament all point to Jesus. And these guys actually took the time, had the open heart to read that, and they could say, wow, this is, this is Jesus. He's the Messiah. And then he leaves Berea, and he arrives at Athens. Who's been to Athens? All right. See, this is probably going to make quite good sense to you. Okay, so he would have arrived through the harbor, and he would have gone up to the double gates at the entry to Athens, which is actually an intersection of four highways that come into the city. And as he came in, he would have seen these enormous statues to the Greek gods of Zeus, Apollos, Hermes. And then he would have seen the Acropolis, which is a giant hill. And on top of the, on top of the hill, he would have seen the Parthenon, which is like their, their temple, uh, temple to, with the temple to Athena on the top. And he would have seen the Citadel Fortress on the way up there. And, and the Greeks actually believed that the statue of Athena actually came down from heaven. If it was a real god, that could have happened, but... No. And this is the story of how Paul basically enters their, their world and tells them about Jesus. So picking it up at uh, Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, he's actually waiting for Timothy and Silas. They're on their way, just so you know who he's waiting for. Okay? His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols now, Athens is the capital of the Greek state of Attica, and it's no longer the political center of Greece because Greece is under Roman control now. So Rome's taken over it. The government's now in Rome. But it was still the religious, the arts, the architecture, cultural capital of, in the big philosophical center of the Greco-Roman Empire. Now, as Paul's walking into this city and he sees these statutes of these false gods, it says that his heart was provoked. Now, that word provoked, I actually looked up in the Greek, it's actually paru... Uh, sorry if you're Greek. Okay, ready? Paru... Paruno. Paru... I don't know what that is. Paruno. Paru, paru There's a good one, all right? Paruno. It sounds Spanish, but we'll go with Greek, right? Paruno. Now, that actual word, it's used to about being exasperated and easily provoked. But the word paru apparently means whole in the ancient Greek. And so this word is used that it was actually like a hole. It stabbed him. It hurt him. It was like a prick in his heart that he was, he, was, he was hurt when he saw this. And the word for idol up there is kadidolos. Kadidolos. Which literally, it's, it's meaning idolatrous in the fact that it's not just that's an idol. It's, this place is utterly 
idolatrous. It's wholly given over to idolatry. Now, an idol, an idol, idol, scripturally, okay? There's many examples in the Old and the New Testament where idolatry seems to be the greatest temptation, not only for the pagan world, because that's just what they, 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 they kind of revel in that stuff, but also for our spiritual fathers and the nation of Israel. Now, it, an idol is anything that you worship the created thing and not the creator, okay? And this, this particular sin was so serious to, to God that... It, it's actually in the Ten Commandments, right, in Exodus 20. But there is many, like, admonishments, rebukes, all through Scripture, where God is trying to stop His people worshipping false gods. Not that He gets a power kick out of it, but because He knows the consequences for the people if that happens, because the Bible is very clear that behind every idol is a demon. So even though it's a false god, there is still a spiritual reality connected to that. Okay, and when you not you guys, but when someone worships that idol, they're literally given, because we've all got free will from the Father, they're giving their will over to the demon behind that. And that's how, like, the black magic occult people and stuff like that today, they can do stuff. If you're walking with the Lord, they're not messing with you, they're messing with God, so they can't do anything to you, but they can do stuff to people, and the demons can do stuff to them. They throw a curse or something at you, it just bounces right off you because you're under God's covering, right? So don't sweat it. If you're not under God's covering, get right with God, okay? Because you might not see what's going on in the spiritual, but believe me, you want to be in, in, under that protection. Now, Israel struggled with idolatry throughout their history. So I'm sort of going from the pagan world back to Israel, right? And the early Christians, they lived in a world full of idols. Both Greeks and Romans used it. And by the time of the New Testament, where we are now, idolatry was not just statutes and things like that, because they actually believed that the, the idol was in the statute or the statute represented the idol. But by the time you get to the New Testament, all these philosophical uh, concepts are arising where idolatry has now moved into, this, into the realm of the mind through ideology and concepts, not just little statutes. It's actually entire belief systems and thought patterns. Now, in our world today, in our world today, right here, we don't bow down to statutes, right? And if you do, that's kind of weird, but we don't, right? And we don't have statutes as, as Christians. We don't have, you know, emblems or anything like that because God is everywhere. He lives inside of us. We don't need to put a thing on the wall and say, that's God, or God will meet us through that. And if you see weird things in movies, just stick, go with the Bible, go with the Bible. Okay, go with the Bible. Don't go with Fox. Don't go with, you know, things like that. Go with the Bible. Okay, now, idolism in the modern world is as pervasive as it ever was in the ancient world. Okay? Now, God does promise that through the power of the cross, we are now set free from the sinful desires that can, that can hold us back from God's plan. Okay? We find our meaning. We find joy in Jesus Christ. And other things will fail to provide that. Okay, so keep in mind, an idol is anything that God takes, uh, sorry, that takes God's place in our lives where we try to seek fulfillment, satisfaction, security, and significance. And the reason I'm hanging around this point a little bit is because this is what Paul's going to confront, all right? Now, the Bible teaches us to put God first in our hearts. Are there things in our life that can become idols? Absolutely. Anything that stands between you and God. Now, I've got a few examples here, Okay. We live in the most materialistic society culture that the world's ever seen. We are literally the wealthiest people that have ever existed on this planet. We've got more stuff than anyone in history. 
and that's a fact. Okay, materialism is a prevalent problem, especially not only in the developed wealthy world, particularly in the, the youth culture, but it's not just, it's not just, it's not at all unique to that culture. But yeah, more than ever, we need the spirit of self-control, okay? We worship self on the altar of materialism. People, they, they, they ruin their own lives to get homes, possessions. They've got to update to the latest thing. They can't even afford it, so they, don't, they can't pay for it, so they put it on credit card. And it's all to set up their own altars to themselves. Now, there is an insatiable desire for more, better, newer stuff, and it's, it's covetousness. Now, in the New Testament, some of Paul's epistles actually connect covetousness, which is a fancy biblical way of saying jealousy, with idolatry. Colossians 3, 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, that's a big F word. That means don't sleep with anyone before you're married. Fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he says again in Ephesians 5, verse 5, For this you know that no fornicator, that's that F word again, unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater, idolatry is connected, covetousness with idolatry, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. It's the 10th commandment in the 10 commandments, but not just materialism. What about your work? What about your job? Does that pull you away from what God has for you? Does that pull you, does that, does your work set you up to serve what God has called you in, or does it pull you away? Okay, success. I mean, that's, that could be a good thing because we've all got goals and plans that we're working towards. And if those aren't honoring to God or what God is, God's will is, then success can become your idol. But your own image. Like, look at everyone's Instagram post and Facebook and putting little filters on there and you, don't, you look like an alien now. You don't even look like yourself. It's all about promoting your own self-image. I've got the perfect life. And you're falling apart inside. Our tech, our phones, our tablets. My gosh, people, I see them in the restaurants. They sit there, like, they're on a date, and they're looking at the phone. It's like they're in love with their phone more than the person. And it's like it's destroying relationships. It's pulling people away from them. Money. My gosh. Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, 24, you can't serve both God and mammon. One or the other. Who pays your wage? You go to work every day. Is it your boss or is it the Lord who provides for you? God can provide for you through your work. Who are you working for? Don't let your work become an idol. Sex is great. Just so you know, okay? You'll find out when you're married, all right? Okay? Although sex was designed as a gift of God to the married couple, our culture has destroyed it, totally abused it. It's been maligned. It's just distorted its values, its purpose, and it's just become... This means to an end of idolatrous self-gratification. All right, substance abuse. People self-medicate with alcohol, drugs, food, food. Look at the highest um, obesity rates. Uh, di- diabetes didn't even exist 40 years ago because we've, like, it's, it's crazy, right? Well, actually it did, but it was very rare. Now, this all goes back right to the Garden of Eden where Satan tempted Adam and Eve to eat from the tree and, and you, you will be like God. What did he say to me? You will be like God. Mankind has tried to become their own God and taking the role of stepping right in, taking that role from God. All right? All idolatry has self at its core. And these three lusts are 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, am I going too fast for you guys, all right? Am I just, just spewing it out there? All right. So 1 John 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. And this is the greatest lie that Satan has been telling us since he first lied to Adam and Eve. Sadly, we're still falling for it. We're still falling for it. All right, now I'll get back to my scripture. Verse 17. That was quick. Thank you. Verse 17. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Now, Paul had this little thing that he did every time he went to a new city. He went straight to the synagogue. Now, the synagogue is different to the temple. The temple is where they would go to make sacrifices, but the, which didn't really go too well for them under occupation. But when they would go to the synagogue, synagogue was kind of like our idea of church. It's like a place, a community center where we come together and we discuss ideas. We read the scripture and we encourage each other. That's what the synagogue is, right? Now, you've got Jews and you've got Gentiles in there. Now, this picture is a bit of a snapshot of the crowd that Paul um, has here. You've also got in the marketplace those who happen to be there. Remember, these guys didn't connect online. They had to actually go out into the streets and connect with people, right? But people, I find in Scripture, I think people are the same throughout every age. I don't think there's a big difference between us and them, those over there, that culture. I think at this core, we're all really the same. We've got a little bit of culture wrapped around that. We've got a little bit of technology that changes how we interact. But I think humans at the core are the same. All right, so these guys are out in the marketplace. You've got different ethnic backgrounds, different reli religious uh, affiliations, and even those in the business world at the marketplace, right? In verse 18, now, that marketplace is also called the Agora. So just to go back to Athens, when you guys would have been there, you've got the, the Acropolis, and then down the, end, the bottom of the hill, you've got the Agora, which is the marketplace, right? And these people, the philosophers up at the, in the temple of the Parthenon and the people in the marketplace, they would meet at a particular place called the Areopagus. And we're going to get there in a second, right? Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the Roman Empire was known for its diversity of religious beliefs. These Epicureans, okay, these, these guys, just, I'm just going to run through this, okay, they kind of believed that happiness would come through seeking whatever brought them physical and mental pleasure. They kind of treated themselves as gods because they kind of felt like if God was so good, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Now, I'll address that later, okay. They kind of saw themselves as God. But then there was also these Stoics. Now, these, this was a philosophy that they intended to become free from passion, free from joy, free from anything, and just calmly accepting whatever happens, whatever will be, will be, and just accept it the way it comes, right? Now, these guys were polytheists because they believed that God was in everything, all right? Now, they accused him of being a babbler. Babbler, I actually looked that up. It's actually a word here, spermologos. Don't say it too slow, okay? It's Athenian, it's Athenian, Athenian slang for a bird that goes around picking up little bits of food like a little bird that picks up seeds. And it was actually used as Athenian slang for those who would go around and pick up little bits of information and gossip about people. 
So that's why they called them a, a, a spermologos. Okay, now, verse 19. Now, these Epicurean Stoics, they took him, they, they took him and brought him to the Aeropagus. Right, now, the Aeropagus. When this was a holy Greek city before they fell to Rome, it was called the Hill of Ares. Ares, they believed, was Zeus's son. He's the god of war. But the Romans took over and they rebadged it and named it after their god, Mars. And hence it became Mars Hill. That's where the name comes from. Right. And they said, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. Now this Aeropagus was in the middle of the Acropolis and the Agora, which is the market. It's in the middle. So basically it was this open forum where people would just come and hang out and listen to what anyone wanted to get up and take the mic and say. And what they would do is they would actually debate these ideas. Because these are civilized people, and people would disagree, and people would argue, and this and that, and they could have a kind of a debate. And what they were attempting to do was find out what, what's really true. That's what they were going after. Okay, now Paul was addressing, right here in his day, the top academics, the top philosophers, and, and even just you dudes that walked in off the street, okay? Now, going to the Aeropagus, today would be the equivalent of like maybe going to Oxford, going to Cambridge, but it was an open forum where anyone could just walk in there and listen. You might not get a front row seat, but you can definitely hear what's going on. Now, verse 20 is coming in one second. Oh, there we are, look at that. For you are bringing some strange thing to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. Verse 21, for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. What does that sound like in our world? Social media. They're out there flogging ideas and saying what's going on and everything, and that's what they're doing. They don't have Facebook, they don't have Instagram, they don't have Twitter. They've actually got to go to the Aeropagast and hear what's going on. Do you see the picture? All right. Now, they would debate all the ideas, ideologies, in the hope that they would deduct truth from that. So Paul, oh my gosh, that's like Paul's like sweet spot, isn't it? <laughs> right? Okay, so the Apostle Paul in verse 22, oh, that was quick. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Aeropagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Just stop there for a moment, okay? Now, there's an old saying, when those that study the Athenian culture, that there was actually more gods in Athens than there was people. Okay? Now, when he says the phrase very religious, it's the Greek term, daisidarumanesteros. That was good, wasn't it? All right. Basically, it means it's not a compliment. It's not a compliment. He's having a dig at him. Takes the mic, gets up there, and says, you guys are a pack of superstitious... <laughs> That's what he's basically said, Right? Okay, so that's how you get attention. Just lead in with an insult, right? All right, verse 23. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I found an, out, an altar with the inscription. And it says, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, this unknown God. Amongst all that idolatry and demon worship, 
there's an altar that has an inscription that's still there today, the unknown God. Now, I looked that up. Well, hold on, we shot forward already. So, unknown God. Okay, the word there, unknown God, in the Greek is agnostos theos. You heard that term before? Some of you might have agnostic friends. It's kind of, you know, cool in the hipster culture to be, I'm an agnostic, right? Now, and agnostos theos is different to today. Today, Gnosticism. So the word nosos is knowledge, right? Knowledge. Now, an agnostic, an agnostos, sorry, means they don't have that knowledge. So it's like we don't have the knowledge of God. But agnostikos means they have the knowledge, right? Now, Gnostics, what they believe, there's a lot of different types of Gnostics, right? There's a whole bunch of, like, different variants of it. Basically, it's saying, well, well, I believe there's a God out there somewhere. But he's so far and detached from our world, I don't really don't know, don't really know what it's about. But I believe he's out there. He could be good, could be bad, but he, I, I, know, I don't know enough. And then you've got people like the Christadelphians who try to know as much as they can to get to God. Right? Now, there are some very weird beliefs in that as well. This concept of Gnosticism is actually totally contrary to our Christian faith. Because we have an ever-present, loving God who has revealed himself to us and he wants an intimate, personal relationship with you. You can know him intimately. Yes, he's all the way out there, but he's right here in you as well. He's not unattainable. Right now where you sit in this chair, you are as close to the omnipresent Father as you will ever be. Even when you die and your soul departs your body, you will be no closer to the Lord when you're standing at the throne than you are right now through the Holy Spirit living in you. When you pray, give the Lord a hand, please. Don't be shy. Praise God. When you pray, you don't have to reach out to the heavens and try to grab his toes. It doesn't work that way. He's right here in your heart if you've invited him into you. Right? changes your prayer life when you get that revelation. Verse 24. I'm going to make it to the end. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So he's gone out there, pointed out to them, they're all a pack of superstitions, like fools, right? And now he's attacked one of the key precepts of the stoic faith that believes that the universe was a constant it was already created the universe is eternal it was already there and they're trying to sort it out now he's just gone straight after that ideology and told them nah, god created the heavens and the earth he's just attacked the, t- the key tenet of the, the stoic faith right paul doesn't quote from hebrew scriptures in his time okay because he's pre- it's a predominantly a greek crowd and they wouldn't know what he's talking about all right? So the big theological precept here is just unraveled, and that's why Paul kicks off with that statement. Now, Athens is different, because everywhere, everywhere Paul lands, he ends up planning a church. This is the only place in all of his missionary church uh, visits that he goes to where there's no church left behind that we know of. There is today, and maybe um, they turned up later on, but there's no epistle pen to the church in Athens. Verse 25, speaking about the Father, nor is he who worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives life, breath, and all things. You see, Paul's saying you don't need to build anything for God to live in. 
you can't build, not even this church, this is a building. This church is, is built to, to build people, but it's not to house God. This church could never house God because you're, you're the, we don't need to make anything for him because he's already made you. He lives in what he created, not what we create for him, all right? You don't need to make uh, things to worship him, right? He's already revealed himself in the things he has made for us. All right, now, verse 26, this is where it gets good. And this really messed me up a little bit, okay? In a good way. Verse 26, and he made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. One blood. So if you pay Ancestry.com enough money, it's all going to go back to one couple, right? We're all the same. We don't look the same. Our heritage don't come from the same place, but we all came from Adam and Eve. And then we all came from the sons of Noah. We're all related, literally. Then it says, doesn't that, just that knowledge, just that, that just irons out any sort of prejudice, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Because there's a lot of junk going around. You know, this atrocity by this subhuman sicko in Christchurch, right? God loves those guys that died. They don't know their father in heaven. They share a different faith, but yet that would break God's heart. Yet I, I, I reposted Pastor Eugene Chone's comment online. I had people calling me, telling me when SMSing that they were not happy with my pandering. I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you saying? Apparently, I offended some people who call themselves Christians. I was like, wow. I, I was like, that's where, no revelation of Christ there. No revelation of Christ. They don't know Jesus. They're hanging on to a cultural version of our faith. They don't share the Father's heart. And I told them, you can't play Christian. You can't play Christian. It doesn't work. We don't wear hats. We don't wear, there's no jewelry. There's no special gowns so people look like, it's, it's the life we live and it comes from the overflow of the heart of Christ in our heart. Right? All right. So, one blood, every nation. There is no room in this kingdom for racism. Someone here needs to hear that, I feel. All right. Every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he has determined... Now, just take your time here to read this one. He has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. Now, I'm sure many of you have read through this many times. All right? I've read this so many times. I love Paul, right? Yet, this particular time when I read it, it was like, some, like I got punched in the face... All right, we, let me, before I get to this, right, you understand, we are all, we are all of equal worth and value before the Father, right? I've got five kids. I've actually had someone ask me once, which one's your favorite? I'm like, what kind of stupid question? I've got five favorites. I don't have a favorite kid. What are you, like, if you think you get, there's something wrong, okay? Our Father in Heaven's like that. There's no partiality, Right? He doesn't love one more than the other. You read these crazy stories about King David. He doesn't love King David more than, than you. He's just using David's story to reveal himself to you. All right? Now, although we're equal in worth and value, we're not equal in gifting and talents. Because Jesus himself says some were given 10, some were given 30, some were given 100. Now, the gifts and talents that you have on your life are in line with your call and purpose in God. Your call is different to your call, and your call is different to your call. So what you've got to do is uniquely you, and you're the only person on this planet that can do it. And you are blessed and anointed and 
backed by God to achieve that. But you can't look at the person in the lane next to you and try to line your life up with them because they're on a different call, a different set of gifts, things, and talent. And we've got to drop this comparison because it's, it's unbiblical, it's ungod. So we're equal worth and value, but we're not equal. We're different, you know what I'm saying? We're not gifts, things, and talent. And I think some of the current narrative that you hear is not about equal worth, it's about equal results. That's not biblical. Do you know what I'm saying? All right. Now, that second part of that verse there. Go with me on this. Because I haven't quite unpacked this, so I just want to make sure I'm right, okay? And has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Tell me, does that mean that God is moving people around? God is moving people around, and it's actually God who is deciding, who's decided their pre-appointed times, so there's different times, and boundaries of their dwellings, and there's different dwellings. So different people are living in different areas, and those boundaries are moving in different times. Is that what that says? Is that what it says? I'm not sure why Paul brought this up there. I can't find it. I went looking for it. But think about in our world today. Think about all the media coverage in Europe of the refugee crisis. Like there are literally people coming through our Torres Strait to get to Australia who are dying in the water because they can't get here. But here it says that God has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Could God be behind this? Because I don't think it caught him off guard. I don't think God's like, oh, I, didn't, I missed that. I didn't see that. No, 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 no. God's always in control. God's always in control. Could, could God be moving masses of people around the world, right? Couldn't that be happening? Can it be happening? I'm asking the question, right? Because I want you to read on to the next one, Okay. Because I believe the second one has the, the reason why. Verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Find him. How is a location, a location going to help someone find God if he's omnipresent? How is a location going to help someone find God if God is everywhere? What's that... I, you know what it is? It's what's at the location that's going to help them. It's something at the location. Now, we live in the, the what they refer to as the Western world, west of Jerusalem. That's where the, that's where the east and west is, east and west of Jerusalem. We predominantly were set up as Christian nations. That's why you have freedom, democracy, and things like that, right? All those wonderful things that everyone takes for granted and the unis want to fight against, right? That's... Now... Yet, the rest of the world is trying to get in to our world. So they might grope for him, find him, though he is not far from each of us. Who represents God in this world? Us. Us. Can literally God be bringing people to us to find him? Is that what that says? Like, is that, is that right? Feel free to disagree because I mean, I'm just telling you. I don't write the mail, I just deliver it, right? I think that's what it says. I think God is moving through the world and moving people around because he's, re he's revealing himself to people and he's preparing for when he comes back. Now, that's, the next time you watch CNN, that's going to change your whole view, right? It's going to change your prayer life. Ask the Lord. If you don't agree with me, that's fine. But I want you to take it to the Lord in prayer. Okay? All right. 
verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. Now, the unknown God, remember, he's in the midst of our culture. There's people out there who are literally walking through his presence and don't even recognize him. He's the unknown God. And then Paul says in verse 28, he says, for we are also his offspring. He's not quoting scripture. Remember, he's speaking to Greeks. He's actually quoting from a Stoic poet called Erastus, who said, for we are also his offspring. So he's even bringing out their theology, pointing out that when you say stuff that kind of sounds right, bringing it back to them, right? Verse 29, therefore, since we are his offsprings, we ought to think of the divine nature like gold, silver, stone, something shaped by a man's devising. Verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands men everywhere to repent. Repent. Verse 31, because he has appointed the day on which he will judge the world by righteousness by the man, we should have a capital M on it, praise God it does, we know who that man is, Jesus Christ, whom he has ordained and he has given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. Verse 32, watch this. And then they heard of the resurrection of the dead. A whole bunch of people, ready for the response? As soon as he talked about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Some mocked. Now, this is the thing, what I've noticed in my time. I've been on this planet 40 years, walking with the Lord, 17. Praise the Lord, right? People don't seem to have a problem with Jesus. Jesus is a good bloke. They kind of like him. He, you know, he kind of walks around, does stuff, has that sort of 90s grunge look about him, and they like him. But they kind of speak about him like in this Disney kind of child, you know, patting the lamb on one side and the kids on the other. But as soon as you start talking about the reality of his miracles and the fact he died on the cross and then came back from the dead, that's when they're like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. That's when they get a bit funny, right? And that's when the jokes come out. Some mocked. Right? But others wanted to hear. Others wanted to hear. I feel it's exactly the same today. And the other big one that turns people off is when you bring the reality of hell out. Hell is a real place. Jesus talked about it. And now, when I said earlier about the whole thing, if God is so good, why does he let people go to, to hell? Well, no, that's not right. Jesus refers to hell as Gehenna. Gehenna was literally the rubbish dump outside of Jerusalem where they would throw pig fat over all the rubbish and burn it so they wouldn't let disease... That's where the whole image of hell burning comes from. It's like it's a refuge that's constantly burned to kill off disease and infection. If the dude with the keys would like to back me on this. All right. Jesus warned us about hell. Now, hell is not everyone's favorite topic to preach, and you don't really hear it talked about that much. But if God was so loving, why would he send anyone to hell? That's, if you, who's heard that question? Who's heard that question? Okay. Wrong question. Because God never intended to send anybody to hell. Hell was made for the devil and his angels who ran an insurrection against God in heaven. They're not like us. They don't have the freedom of will that we have. They're a different being. You know when someone dies and they go, oh, he's an angel in heaven now? No, he's not an angel in heaven. We're not angels. We don't become angels. Angels are different beings to us. Okay? But an angel called Lucifer... With a third of the angels, his bunch of corrupt merry men led a rebellion against God. And hell, heaven was perfect, and God's like, nah. 
not in my house. And he kicked him down to earth so fast that it said, look, Isaiah says, it, oh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel says it looks like lightning. That is a serious foot up the pool, right? From God. That's Bible. All right? God never intended hell for humans. And that's why he sent his son to earth to die on the cross in our place as a substitutionary atonement so that when you die and you stand before the Father, you can't take your sin and junk that you've inherited not only from Adam and Eve but committed all yourself. You can't take it into heaven because heaven's perfect. But God loves you too much to lose you. If you'd all like to be standing, please. And we're going to pray to the Lord. God loves you too much to lose you. That's why he came down to earth himself and he pushed you out of the way and took the firing squad for you. He sat on your electric chair and took it for you. And there's nothing you can ever do to earn that or repay him for that. It is by his grace that you are saved through faith. God never intended anyone to go to hell. That's why he died in their place. And that's why we have a great commission to send this good news to the world. Now, today, I don't want anybody leaving here with even a smidgen of doubt in their hearts where your eternal destination is. Christ died for you. And even if you were the only person on this planet, he still would have died for you. He still would have come down off his throne to save you because he loves you. He loves you. And this is the God that Paul is speaking about. There is a world out there that is living amongst the unknown God. There's a hole in their hearts. There's, they try to fill that hole with alcohol, sex, drugs, anything that alleviate that pain of having that hole in their heart. But there's a Jesus-shaped heart, hole in their heart, and only Jesus can fill that. Now, we've got, we've got work to do in our community, in our nation, in our world. world. We've got work to do to share this message. But right now here, I want to take this opportunity to make sure every single person here is in that grace of the Lord, having received his gift of salvation. Now, if all lights closed, and if you belong to Christ, pray with me. Pray with me for everybody else here. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for your tremendous, unexplainable, unimaginable gift of grace that you, you would even come to earth and save a wretch like me. And you did this, Lord. This is fact. And we are saved by your grace. You gave us a free ticket to eternity with you. There's nothing we can do to earn it, pay you back. It's all by your grace. We could try to be the best person we can possibly be. It doesn't cut it. Because you're perfect. Heaven's perfect. But Lord, if there's anybody here today who doesn't know you personally, I pray, Holy Spirit, stir it on their heart. Reveal yourself to them. Let them bring it to the altar today and give their life to you, Jesus, and receive your gift of grace. If that's you here tonight, today, and you feel Holy Spirit talking to you, right where you are with all eyes closed, I just want you to lift your hand up. And the reason is I want you to make that profession of faith today in Jesus. And I'll pray, it would be my honor to pray with you. If there's anybody here, we're all family, guys. We're all of one blood here. If there's anybody at all. Okay. 
Let me pray for you. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray, Lord, you take these words from your scripture, Lord. And I pray you just give, just sear it in the memory of your, your people here today. I pray you just etch it in their hearts so that they'll remember it, they'll walk with it, it'll come back to their memory when they need it, Lord God. I just pray your blessing, protection, and guidance for them. And we ask this in your glorious name today. In Jesus' mighty, matchless name, amen. If you wanted to respond to God, and you just, I'm going to be at the front later, okay? And I would love to pray with you, okay? But right now, let's just thank the Lord. With, with, let's, just, let's, just, let's just praise God. Let's just thank Him. Give Him a hand. Praise God. And I will give the mic back to 